Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson. And have you ever thought that the workaday world was just a little too much for you? You ever just wanted to escape the real world, walk in realms of fantasy? Well, don't. It's too dangerous. We're going to talk about that on today's <laughs> It'll episode. mess you up. Yeah. <laughs> It'll mess you up, folks. So I am going to ask uh, Terry, how you doing? And do you have any announcements for us? I'm going to say I'm okay. And when you say working hard towards ascension so you don't have to, I'm going to second that motion because it's these 188-page chonkers of a book where I'm like, man, we're ascending something fierce. And we don't even have the excuse of it being in-world fiction to explain why it's three times longer than it necessarily has to. So I have no announcements, and I'm excited to get through this. I, I just like to think of the first book you and I reviewed was Digital Web, and it was like, what, 75, 85 pages, and we talked for two and a half hours. If we had kept that up, this would be a seven-hour recording, and that is just <laughs> terrifying. Well, I can't promise our listeners seven hours today, but there is a lot of material here. I've got notes a little longer than normal. A lot of things I was just hoping to talk about. I realize that I should be reasonable and respect the valuable time of our listeners. But we're talking about the Umbra. No, nope, they're mage fans. Not apply they don't here. have an excuse. <laughs> well, today we're talking about the Infinite Tapestry. This is a 188-page book put out for revised edition of Mage in 2003. There are four authors listed... What is not common is we are told which portions of the book they uh, contributed. And there is no author listed for Chapter 6. So that is either a developer who uh, wishes to remain nameless out of uh, humility, or that was a typo, and uh, one of these guys uh, worked on Chapter 6 and we're just not aware of it. Terry, can you start us off with a walkthrough? The book starts with a introduction, and it sets up the idea that there is Earth, the mud ball, the mundane world, and then there are the other worlds. And there are two that are talked about, the astral and the penumbral, which to me was immediately confusing, because when I think astral, I think high umbra. One of the things this book does is it gives us a bunch of new terms and gives us kind of a new framework for things. So if you grab this and you're like, these words mean different things. The answer is yes. Yes, they do. It talks about how the other worlds have changed in the wake of the Avatar Storm. And on a factional side, that the technocracy lost contact, but then regained contact with a fair number of agents that are still out in the cold. This has resulted partially in some of the technocrats uh, going rogue, others being back into the warm and great brace of the technocracy. But this moment of disconnect and the fact that the technocracy had to continue to work kind of seeded this notion of rebellion. There is no consensus as to what caused the Avatar Storm. Within the game, you can say that it was caused specifically by the Week of Nightmares, or it was caused by the deaths from the Awakening of Ravana, or from the explosion of the Spirit Nuke in the Well of the Void, or the appearance of Antelios, or whatever, but it says, eh, mages aren't entirely sure, which I'm fine with. And uh, the, the final thing that really stuck with me is it gives us the idea that the Umbra used to be more directly tied to the mundane world, and now is not. Some change has happened over time, and then some change... We get a few storytelling principles that the other worlds are constantly changing, that they are infinite, and that story succeeds where rules fail. I would argue that rules make for good stories, but that's me being a fuddy-duddy. Any thoughts about the introduction? 
I just wanted to say that when I read this three-page introduction, I was actually impressed with what a nice uh, introductory summary it gives to the Umbra. So uh, a new mage fan who's picking up this book and saying, Umbra, okay, what's that? It gives a very nice uh, kickoff to the book. And, and so I, I appreciate that. It means someone put some thought into this. Chapter one is entitled Stepping Over and tries to go through a basic cosmology and I was real excited because even throughout the entirety of second edition, there are still some basic questions about how things are organized that I was hoping this would answer. In many cases, it did. In some cases, it did not. So reader, uh, if you are left with some questions, at least we can be confused together. It starts with the earth at its core and that everything casts a spirit shadow in the umbra. Umbra literally meaning shadow. This spiritual reflection is the penumbra. And in addition to that, additional dimensions exist above, below, and around Earth. The notional representation of this is that the high umbra is above, the middle umbra is around, and the low umbra is below. This book does not give much treatment to the penumbra or the middle and low umbra. And at the end of the day, I am fine with that. We get a lot of information about the High Umbra and the other worlds because that's where Mage plays. There's also a note that says, hey, the Middle Umbra now looks a lot like it does in Werewolf. How about that? And I was impressed by the restraint that it doesn't say, now go buy this book for Werewolf, which I think most of the other revised books would have done if they had their, uh, their wits about them. It also notes that it is nearly impossible to enter the Low Umbra in the 21st century. The storm has thrown out souls from the Low Umbra as well as barring people from entry. Those ejected souls in some cases have become uh, shamblers and walkers and other strange creatures that are pursued by hunters. It doesn't come out and say that, but I figure you could tell that there was a sea change in here because we didn't get our obligatory reference to hunter in this book. The Amenti have returned, go mummy! and the middle umbra have become defensive and racked by storms. It refers to the warp weft and woof of the fabric of reality and Terry's pedantry corner. I believe weft and woof are synonymous. So there's no reason to list that separately. So we have the three umbrae and that beyond them, we have the first horizon. And this is a barrier of paradox or energy or something. And within the first horizon or between it, we have the true horizon, which stretches from the earth's atmosphere to the asteroid belt. It is full of ether. All the territory in there is the horizon. This is where the horizon realms drift. The sea of ether extends to the far horizon, which is a sphere of hazards around the asteroid belt beyond which lies the void, the deep universe, or the infinite, which stretches off into infinity. Each planet holds a shard realm and is tied to a shade realm. Previously, this was something that was cast on the first horizon. Now it's kind of like, Bleh. after the reckoning, the connection between the two are a little bit adrift. But now we have an idea of what are called planetary realms, which we'll go over in a later chapter. The Avatar Storm may have been an attempt for reality to reboot itself, to kind of clean itself up after years and two editions of crust had kind of accumulated. That there is now the what is known as the 90-gate day guarantee, that after three cycles of the moon have passed, you discoporeate in one of seemingly 17 different ways and get stuck permanently in the Umbra as a spirit or an entity that dissolves or something else. In previous editions, in Beyond the Barrier, this was listed, but the nature of it was kind of up in the air. Now it has become a hard limit. 
The other thing we do that this is something that Bill Bridges was very particular in saying was that the Avatar Storm was intended to make it so that the plot was directed more towards Earth. But the idea that stepping sideways could just flat out kill an archmage was not something that some of the designers believed should occur. And we get a few new ways of stepping sideways or going elsewhere. One is to use astral projection with Mind 4 or 5, where you just kind of send your consciousness somewhere else. In addition to that, though, we have the new Astral Sojourn wrote that says with Mind 5, Prime 2, Spirit 3, you go there mentally and create kind of a cognitive body for you, and you ultimately wind up using your physical stats. The book also mentions that there are other ways that uh, shallowings are a safe way of crossing over and that natural shallowings also exist. Uh, something that is not quite spelled out but mentioned in other places are that people with the domain background can access the Umbra through their dreams safely. They also make mention of the idea of alternative pericarps requiring different spheres to cross. The idea is a pericarp is a general term for a gauntlet that now when they refer to the gauntlet, they're strictly referring to Earth, but that other areas might have them and gives a bunch of storyteller advice on how to use them. Like, hey, this is a good way of saying uh, you can't go to this area until you have the appropriate spheres and so on, which makes me feel like Mage is kind of a Metroidvania game where you're like, oh, there's this big gap and I can't get over it without double jump. I guess I better go find that. The gross topology of the Umbra seems to still kind of be there in certain ways and that the moon is kind of always visible. The next big section we get to is it explains how the journey occurs. The first is always that you perceive the umbra. The periphery is the light that shines through the crack around the door of reality. You need to bypass the gauntlet in some way. You need to get to the other side. You arrive in the penumbra, and then from there you have the ability to go to the low, middle, or high umbra, or continue on to some other place that you're going. Uh, it makes brief mention of moon paths as a way of getting around the middle umbra, and it also says that astral projection defaults to going to the high umbra physical entry dumps you generally in the middle umbra you also have the ability to move around using the pattern webs that are these strands that kind of connect the middle umbra and that moon paths and spirit trails connect places of importance we also get some narrative changes that the mages in the other worlds give off a palpable aura and you can roll to discern things that you leave kind of an auric trail that with sensory magic you can kind of find where a mage has gone the zones still exist the elder bowl or mount Kaf now allow you to navigate between layers unpredictable doors between areas still exist the dream realms are formed when sufficient dreaming occurs and that when a bunch of humans dream about the same thing that dream realm can grow and ultimately become uh, stuck on something. It can become a mythic realm. It can become a spire. It makes some mention to the dreaming of changing the dreaming, but uh, does a good job of saying, hey, dreams exist and they do their own thing. The mirror zone is still here. These are areas that are some sort of reflection of our earthly reality with slightly different rules. With the emphasis on disembodiment, this mistake can become quite lethal to the mage quite quickly. Uh, the null zone still exists, the back door to reality where magic and technology tend not to work and connects seemingly all other places in reality. And vistas are still a thing. These floating images of the demise of often the mage or society or the world. 
It gives some high-level rules on how realms work, that the closer to Earth you are, the more likely a realm is to make sense and to be habitable to a human, and that umberquakes are still racking the area, rearranging the paths between realms. Umberquakes are not actually earthquakes of any sort. They are kind of leftover bits of the Avatar Storm. Avatar Storms can also pass through realms themselves, making them quite dangerous. They are more easy to avoid as if they were an actual storm, and they're generally a sign that uh, something profound is about to happen. We get a little bit more information on disembodiment and how that occurs, that after your 90 days, you can make a willpower roll, uh, but that there are other ways to extend your stay through the use of the umbral affinity trait through having a totem or more specifically a spirit patron of some sort and certain wonders. Acclamation is listed, which is a system by which if you've spent a lot of time in the Umbra, it takes a little bit of time for you to get used to it. The last section within chapter one is called Speaking with Dreams, Walking with Spirits, which essentially says that dream speakers are special. It's our obligatory once per edition statement that dream speakers are better than you are when it comes to dealing with spirits and says that certain totems that they can have, certain spirit patrons can reduce the effects of disembodiment and gives a system that says, hey, for this many background points, you can have a totem that gives you this benefit. You can have a totem that can either provide you soak against the avatar storm or help you no longer be disembodied at the cost of the deeper into the umbra you go, the more like your totem you wind up looking. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of traditionalists getting superpowers. I'd rather this just be a shamanic thing that some practitioners have been able to work out with their spirit patrons. I'm not a big fan of the term totem. It refers to a specific belief by a certain group. It's been genericized, so I just go a spirit patron. That's just me. I can see a hermetic making a pact with an angel or a cultist with a zeitgeist to get to the same spot, so why limit it? But it's an interesting idea that you can bring in. As you may have noticed as we were going through, there were some changes that have occurred between what I described and what happened in previous editions. And when I think of systematic reviews of changes of rules across editions, I don't think of anyone in particular, because I think at this point, Adam and I have both talked about it, but in this particular case, I want to hear Adam's thoughts about it. Adam, what do you think about all the changes? One of the real important things for me about the Tomes of Magic series of podcasts is to discuss how the world of Mage has changed um, as we walk through the books from beginning to end. And so I just wanted to do a uh, kind of a bullet list of how the Umbra is different here than it was before. And the Umbra really has not been talked about very much in revised edition at all. And so this, in, it's not our first look at it, but it's our first serious look at it in revised edition. So the, I noticed a, a number of changes between how the Umbra was in the first two editions of Mage. So uh, here we say the Avatar storm winds blow throughout the Umbra uh, in realms and in between realms. It's very dangerous. Uh, mages must acclimate after returning to Earth from the Umbra. All layers are more difficult to navigate and more dangerous than before. Low Umbra is almost totally shut off. Middle Umbra is hostile now to mages, uh, but not to were creatures. Uh, disembodiment is now 84 days instead of a year. We've been saying 90 days here. Uh, it, it mentions in chapter one that the uh, 90-day warranty is, is sort of a joke expression that some technocrats say, but the rules specifically state 84 unless you take advantage of one of the systems to extend it. Disembodiment now applies inside horizon realms where it did not before. Earth's moon is visible everywhere this side of the horizon. Uh, high Umbra has become more fixed and understandable. Uh, there are now countless umbral courts 
instead of four or one. There are no or very few horizon realms, and any you come across are going to be ghost realms. Uh, the horizon is no longer a wall in the Umbra. It is now a, a spacious zone. It starts at the first horizon, which corresponds to Earth's atmosphere. It ends at the far horizon, which corresponds to the asteroid belt in our solar system. So it used to be that uh, horizon realms uh, were stuck onto the wall that was the horizon and were a means through that uh, to, for some clever spirits. And now horizon realms, well, when they were there, they were sort of bubbles that floated through a spacious zone. So that's a bullet list of the changes here. And as for my thoughts on chapter one, few things that stood out to me. On page one, it says, quote, for untold ages, the high umbra was only attainable by masters of the mind sphere, end quote. And I thought, that's, that's news to me. Uh, reading through every book up until this one, I, I thought that was, uh, you, you didn't have to be a master of the mind sphere to go to the high umbra if you're a mage, but um, maybe I misinterpreted that. You could go to it, but they specifically said, oh, you brought your physical body with you, noob? You can't ascend to the epiphanies unless you find someone to drag you there for you. And you more or less had to astral project to get to that, uh, which implies at least uh, adept status. So... Okay, well, Epiphanes is part of the High Umbra, but the quote says the High Umbra. Yeah. So that was just yeah. not careful editing. But um, I was sad to see that the Middle Umbra is now defaulting to the second Umbra book that was published for a Werewolf the Apocalypse game. I really liked the idea of there being a different experience when a mage went to a realm that where creatures were familiar with. I thought that was a really cool part of uh, second edition and now uh, that's gone so i i understand that it is is easier to run with for a storyteller uh, especially with mixed uh, player groups but for me it was it was kind of sad to see that one go on page 21 i really like the alternate sphere methods of passing different barriers inside the umbra like going from the middle umbra to the high umbra or, or stuff like that um, there are different spheres involved in, in passing that barrier i thought that was that was really cool really something I'd like to run with in my games. The Mercurian cosmology was mentioned in Book of Worlds. This is supposed to be a large volume or series of documents that was started by the Hermetic Order, but in more recent years, uh, mages from the other nine tradition, the other eight traditions uh, contributed to it, and it became a sort of council of nine um, volume on understanding and getting around the Umbra. Uh, here in Infinite Tapestry, it mentions this Mercurian cosmology again. I thought it was funny that on page 22, it says, oh, the Mercurian cosmology is, is broke. Uh, it's no good no more, and I shouldn't rely on it. But then on page 11, it says, it's actually very effective. People who, who have knowledge of the Mercurian cosmology go into the Umbra looking for something, and they usually find it. So I thought that was kind of clever page 30, we have a mention of umbral tidal motion. I, I love this. This is something that I've, I've always been uh, fixing on uh, since the earliest days of Mage. And I, I kind of had the notion that I came up with it myself. You won't find much of it in earlier Mage books. But here they say there are natural forces like, say, tectonic plates on the surface of the Earth where, you know, the, the land masses of Earth change over time slowly, but they do change. And it's saying this kind of thing is going on in the Umbra too. There are natural forces at work in the Umbra that make things change over time. And uh, if someone can get to understand those, they'll understand the Umbra a whole lot better than someone who has a map of, you know, this road will take you here. So I really love seeing that. And uh, page 30, there's a travel summary sidebar. It's a great big sidebar. It takes up a big portion of the page. And it basically says, if you're going here, here are the rules. If you're going there, 
here are the rules for that. It's like, oh, I, I love this. Okay, yeah, well, this one, this one was just much more detailed, laid out, um, easy to reference. It's like, I, I might want to photocopy this and have it yeah. on a storyteller screen. Oh, yeah, that would have been great. Darn cool. Chapter two is entitled The Lower Astral Reachers. And boy, howdy, do I like me a title that says exactly what is in the chapter. This presents the idea that the penumbra blends directly into the Vulgate. There is no mention of the Vidare, really, that uh, people have kind of a view, but we don't get too much more information on it, which I, I am fine with. I'm very take it or leave it with the idea that you have a, a particular Vidare when you visit the penumbra, that when you land in the Vulgate, it looks like the world, if not looking like a specific place. In the distance, you can see the spires fade off into the epiphanies, the planets loom close in the sky, and the Vulgate is kind of this large Earth-like city place, maybe from various times and places. So it is at least recognizable as being Earth and human civilization. It starts out with the basic question of, so why would you do this? And the answer is boons. Boons are a narrative term for what may be a narrative or a system benefit. So the idea is a character needs a particular bit of knowledge to figure out how a rote works or to solve some sort of puzzle. The knowledge they get is a boon. A boon doesn't necessarily have to be a mechanical thing. Like, for instance, if you visit the epiphany of CrossFit, your character gains a dot of strength, dexterity, and stamina at the cost of a dot of uh, charisma and having to do a willpower check to not talk about doing CrossFit. The boons can represent something mechanical or not, but within each section, the authors try and go out of their way to say, hey, this is why you might want to go here. And I appreciate that uh, very story-focused way of doing it. They talk about how time passes differently in the Umbra, and this is seemingly a way of getting around that 84-day limit of saying, well, if you're really on target, players, then time will pass slower and you won't disembody, but if you dawdle, I'm going to kill your characters, which is kind of a way to read it. It talks about how the Vulgate is full of stereotypes of characters that enjoy the repetitive, which again seems like an adventure hook to be like, do you have something tedious to do? Go to the Vulgate and have stereotypes do it for you. It talks about how these characters care about their zodiacal sign, and then it goes on to a description of the Vulgate. It is the realm of human thought, both rational and irrational. Technocrats view it as a collective hallucination, and you generally only encounter people on your way once you get to where you're going, or once you're trying to find someone. I like the idea of being able to populate an area with a panoply of characters. It's just one of those things that would strain my storyteller ability to be able to describe what a world full of seemingly every stereotype would look like. And a note on language, it refers to stereotypal characters. So it doesn't, they're not quite full on stereotypes, but they more accurately represent archetypes. The trick here is that the term archetype is already used in the World of Darkness setting to refer to nature and demeanor. So archetypal characters or stereotypal characters would be things like the research librarian the barkeep or something like that, that there are these characters that have a certain amount of cultural cachet and shorthand to them, and that the Vulgate is populated with, with these characters. As the day passes in the Vulgate, things go from reason to suspicion, perfect planning to disaster. The closer you are to noon, the more ideally and rationally things run. The closer to midnight you are, the more suspicious, duplicitous, and irrational things become. 
you ride through areas in the Vulgate that represent different regions of thought uh, that you could encounter an area that is tied to a culture or to a time period. And it notes that this is not proper time travel. This is just a representation of that type of thought throughout human history. All magic here is coincidental, but locals may take it upon themselves to maybe drop some paradox at the length of a four-foot stick if you violate their local consensus, which I like. So the idea here is you don't generate paradox, but you may raise the attention of people if you're doing something outside of kind of what their area would do. The first major feature we get is the River of Language. It is a large delta that consists of all contemporary languages. And as you travel up it, you can go along any culture that kind of shared a language. So you go up the English branch and that you find yourself in the United States or in the United Kingdom or in Australia, as well as all of the uh, English diaspora communities. If you go back up, you may go through Old English to Saxon or something like that. And then you could follow that down and go to German or something via Teutonic route if you really wanted to. Their area is replete with strange connections between languages as well as extinct languages being kind of these empty riverbeds and I, I thought this was neat there it is prowled by by boats that move information and gossip back and forth that anything that you tell someone who prowls the river of language will be known by everyone within a day or two we get the rest of the chapter is notable places in the umbra some persist some change there are a bunch here i am just going to pick one, the Bibliotheca Excentrica, the Library of Alexandria. This is interesting because this is uh, one of at least two places that the Library of Alexandria kind of exists, and the character of Hypatia exists in at least three different copies throughout World of Darkness. It contains much lore, and all characters who go in are politely asked for all written works that they have so that they can be copied and added to the collection. That if a character refuses, successively more extreme methods will be used to get the information out of the characters they will always be given the opportunity though to provide it to provide it peacefully before they become violent this copying process is quite rapid and there is a special collection section of it that contains all fictional works that ever existed not works of fiction but books that do not exist that are talked about for instance you can find the works of kilgore trout or the king in yellow here and I think this provides some exceptional story opportunities for any number of characters who want to track down a copy of The King in Yellow or the Necronomicon or something like that. And it gives stats on the people that work there, what it is a storehouse of in terms of media as such, what it would look like, the fact that periodically the stacks will collapse on someone and the people working the library will find a sage that has just been discoporeated and gone to dust being pinned under this massive collection of books, and that can be humorous or morbid, depending on the track that you would like to take. We get a, a, a number of other locations that round out the chapter, and it talks about how some have changed from previous times. The Inventium is no longer the place of great discovery that it once was, but it gives you a lot to, uh, it gives you a lot to play with. Well, when it comes to chapter two, I was kind of thrown by, on page 38, they say, quote, just as the middle umbra can be said to be composed of the collective feelings and instincts of the world, end quote. I was, it's like, that's the first time I've, in any mage book, I've heard, I've seen the middle umbra be referred to in that way. That is, that is kind of wild. I thought it was all about like nature and animals and geographical locations and everything on earth. But now it's about feelings and instincts, uh, which I kind of tied to humans. And I thought that the high umbra 
was the place where human thoughts, feelings, etc., were, were dealt with. So that was that was a head scratcher for me. But um, maybe that was just one author's point of view. The River of Language was such a long section. The author was just really, I guess, fascinated with the study of languages and wanted to carry that fascination onto page after page after page. It was interesting to see how the river of language was an epiphany, which was like you know, notions of language in the Book of Worlds. But here it's, it's not only pulled down to the Vulgate, but it, now it is the Vulgate. And so um, I, I guess that's interesting for people to, to play with. As for me, it seems so normal and so relatable that uh, for me it was like a, it's like a weekend driving excursion. I, I kind of like the Umbra to be more weird and, and different instead of like a quaint town where you can get something nice for lunch and then take a river cruise and chat with some people in German. And so what an hour south of me is San Antonio where I go and do exactly that thing. But uh, not that I speak German, but it just made the Vulgate so normal and so accessible that I can see how this makes it easy to handle for a lot of people. And, and I'm glad they get a resource that uh, they can work with nicely. But as for me, I want to, I want to switch it up more, make it a little, little weirder, a little less easy and accessible. Chapter three is entitled The Upper Astral Reaches. And here we dive into what is at least felt to me to be a new detailed portion. The idea that throughout the river of language and the delta of modernity, there are spires. These are large vertical places. They could represent a literal mountain. It could be a giant difficult to navigate tree. Uh, it could be a, a ziggurat. It could be a building that extends from the ground clearly up into the sky. And you can fly climb or use magic otherwise to get up. They're ruled by storms that kind of rack their surface, whether or not you are climbing them or not. These avatar storms cause kind of small amounts of damage like the avatar storm. They're like baby avatar storms um, that can damage or disorient. You can also fly if you want, but to do so you need to deal with the umbral gods that control weather and such. The older a spire is and the more established it is in the consciousness of humanity, generally the easier it's going to be to ascend. If you want to deal with the Greek pantheon or something like that, that's very well-traveled paths. It's, it's going to be easy to navigate. Uh, more remote realms of thought are going to be may out be in the great ocean, this unknown area that the river of language dumps into that is kind of very much left as a, a, a blank space. The spires out in the great ocean are nearly sheer. Spires may go down. You may have to crawl down a sheer well or into a massive coal pit. And these spires can connect disparate regions. People can skip ascending a spire to go to the Epiphanies, but people who do so are named Icarites, and uh, a bad things apparently happen. They are notionally a way of preparing the self for the Epiphanies, that in the Vulgate you're experiencing humanity, and in the spires there is some sort of refinement to the self. Each has five ways in and two ways out. The ways in are by the senses, and the ways out are through the gates of rhyme and reason, and there are reasons or benefits for entering or exiting via one versus the other. Along the way in the spires, we have the elemental courts, of which the two listed ones are the uh, the western and the eastern court, that these are optional, and they focus on the elemental framings. The eastern court is 
peopled by the Chinese emperor that represent wood, fire, earth, metal, and water. The Western courts have air, earth, fire, and water, and their standard elemental embodiments that characters that engage with these courts on their way up will receive a temporary willpower die for their astral journey, or may do so permanently if they do the same on the way down. The spirits there are always familiar with what is going on further up their spire in whatever other court that they are going to deal with. And the, the courts are presented as being much wider than what we had before. That, as I said, you could deal with the Greek pantheon, or you could deal with the zodiac, or you could deal with the tarot as the spire that you are in. In addition to that, we get the idea that the court of the muses have reemerged, that the this is a combination of the traditional Greek muses along with nine new ones that are added to get a total of 18. In addition to that, we get Musegenes that represents the Dionysian-Apollonian split and as well as the Elder Muses, which more or less map onto the Norns or Fates or, or Three Sisters. So in addition to the classical ones, they are divided kind of into the Muses of Media, which asks the question of how is an art form being done and the Muses of Mode, which care about genre of the story. And we get a write-up for every one of these. So in all, we get 18 Muses, plus the Sisters, plus Musegenes, plus Pegasus. So we get a bunch. But one of the things that happens here is the system of patronage is introduced, whereby in exchange for either experience points or for narrative action, a character can take upon themselves a spirit patron who will give them some sort of power or benefit, a boon, in exchange for a ban, a thing that they have to do or cannot do. So for instance, if you want to take on yourself the muse of music, you want calliope or something to do it, you need to produce some form of musical art at least once a week, preferably daily, deliver a grand performance at least once a year, and in exchange for that, uh, maybe you get a dot of charisma, a dot of performance, as well as access to a special semi-magical ability. Maybe you have the ability to ensorcel someone through song in a way that does not require uh, sphere magic to do. We then get a number of other archetypes that characters can encounter. We get the metathematic archetypes, which are cases of whenever a whole bunch of cultures have a similar god seemingly for something. For instance, Zeus Bronthor, which is kind of every god of thunder and in exchange for screaming their name real loud during thunderstorms never backing down from a fight you can periodically shoot lightning at people which on the whole seems pretty great there are also the neotheotic archetypes which are new gods that have come across maybe the spirit of motherhood or the spirit of informational connection once you have dealt with the the spire more or less you can launch off into the epiphanies they are literally found among the clouds and are mapped to various concepts these are generally viewed as being more refined and that injuries taken in the epiphanies are not necessarily physical, but may manifest as social penalties until healed. We don't really get a system for this, but I thought that was interesting. Ladders are manifested so you can ascend to the epiphanies, so you don't necessarily need to directly fly. And these bridges are going to vary in form depending on if you exited via the gate of rhyme or reason. And it goes through a bunch of epiphanies. And each of these kind of presents either a mechanical bonus or a narrative bonus. And there are a bunch. For instance, the world stage is an epiphany that you can uh, dump into that gives the storyteller an opportunity to give you vital information and so on, which I always appreciate. Uh, the continuum orrery shows every possible configuration of the heavens from every possible culture. Uh, you can switch between a uh, Earth-centric 
moon-centric or sun-centric view of things. You can run time forward or backwards. You can see every constellation and so on. And it can be used to find other epiphanies. We don't really get rules for it, but it is suggested that you can kind of go bounce from one epiphany to another as is needed. Of these that are listed, the Well of Remembrance is one I'm particularly fond of, which is if you consume the water of it, you have perfect recall. You can see areas where your memory has been manipulated and so on. Adam, did you have a favorite uh, epiphany or spire or what have you? And what'd you think about the chapter? Uh, well, when I think of chapter three, there's actually, I had a number of notes on this one. Um, <clears throat> uh, page 64 mentions uh, you're required to make the gods happy. It says that many uh, technocrats or technological oriented mages uh, don't want to climb the spires and deal with the umbral courts. They want to find some way to fly right up to the epiphanies directly. And it says that the gods hate that. And if you use the spire to come back down, they'll actually try to confront you or, or punish you in some way. And so I, I thought this was odd. It, it seems to imply that somehow traditional thinking is better than modern thinking. And that was, that was a little strange for me. Also, it said that the gods of the different umbral courts will try to push mages to the gate of rhyme and try to keep them away from the gate of reason. And I, again, I thought that was odd. A lot of mythologies and cultures have gods of law, gods of knowledge, gods of magic, or, or you know, et cetera, things like that. And I, I don't necessarily see gods as being more feeling and less rational. Um, I, in fact, I can see gods, if you want to look at some progression of culture from early shamanic cultures to theistic cultures that talked about God, that could even be seen as a uh, advance of rationality if you look at it from a certain point of view. So I, I just don't see why gods need to be portrayed as anti-rational. I like the idea of umbral courts being their own thing instead of being a stop on the way to the epiphanies, but um, I did like the idea about how visiting the one of the umbral courts can help a mage in integrating their psyche so that they are better prepared for what they find when they reach the epiphany. That was that was an interesting idea, and it made me willing to reconsider this idea that umbral courts should totally stand on their own. They have a sidebar for spirit traits, you know, gnosis, rage, etc., like we're we're used to seeing in previous mage books, actually. But they're saying that we should use essence instead of power uh, as a, a spirit trait, not as a mage character's trait. And that was, I thought that was just confusing because mages have, you know, one of four different essences. And so having essence as a spirit trait, I think is, is just terrible. We, I think we should stick with the term power uh, as a spirit trait. The elder muses didn't seem to fit with the younger muses. I just seemed, it seemed like they were a different kind of a being, a different kind of role in the universe. And so saying they're all muses just stood out as being uh, unworkable for me. I really liked how they broke it down to, for gods in the umbral courts, traditional gods like, oh, I met Zeus, I met Odin, to metatheitic, the idea of the king of the gods is all kind of rolled into one, or all of the different gods of the harvest are rolled into one being that you can talk to. And also neotheitic, and these are basically new gods, the god of the internet, the god of gambling, or, or you know, maybe I should say the god of casinos, uh, something like that, some, some new concept that old cultures just would not have been able to talk about, but now there is a new god for that, which of course reminded me of, of Neil Gaiman's novel on the gods and how they were trying to get by in the modern world. So I, I really liked 
this um, this three terms, traditional, metatheetic, and neotheetic, as, as a tool for a storyteller to say, well, what do I want to do with my umbral court for my players? What are my options, and how can I work through that? So very handy. It was interesting to me how the high embra is now procedural in the sense that you start in the Vulgate, you gather your information, you move to the right place where you're going to find the spire that you want, you start climbing up the spire so that you can get to the Umbral Court. Uh, the Umbral Court uh, there, if that goes well, they're going to give you some information or basically give you the green light to carry through so that you can go out to a cave entrance on their spire and step onto a magic ladder or bridge or escalator, etc., and get up to an epiphany. And once you get to the epiphany, all the things that you've done before prepare you for what you're going to do there. I, I see this as, as a handy tool for storytellers and an interesting way to take all the different parts of the high umbra and roll them into a larger story that is coherent, uh, but at the, at the same time, having a system for the high umbra seemed a bit odd for me, this sort of realm of ideas and notions where anything can happen. It seems like that should be a little chaotic in my mind, but, uh, but, but interesting to see how that can be worked with. The boon for the uh, Continuum Orrery, which is basically like a, a giant super planetarium epiphany, it said that you can gain a key understanding in cosmology, but then talked about that as if it's a knowledge of astronomy in, in the physical world. And so that seemed to be a, a key misunderstanding of the term cosmology in the game of mage. So I went back to the revised edition book and looked up cosmology in revised edition core book. And yeah, it, it's about the umbra and spirits. It's not about the physical world we live in or astronomy. And so that was, it seemed like something the editor or the developer should have caught and said, can we talk about this? Uh, also in the continuum orrery, I thought it was so funny how it talks about how if the mages play around with the controls, of the orrery and you know basically making things display different ways in the planetarium they're going to find a lot of cool things but if they play around with it too much here's how the storyteller can shut them down so i, I thought it was so funny it's like we encourage you to play but not too much that's bad so how, how much is enough we'll tell you when we start getting harsh on you cut it out the newton einstein epiphany was really weird to me it, it talked about how you can take the notion of a physics lecture and a really cool multimedia sort of a presentation on physics and work it into a really cool physics lesson. It's like, okay, when, when I take my mage players into a, a mage session, I don't, I don't really want to give them a physics lecture. I, I, you know, maybe I'm the oddball here, but I have no desire to live out my college textbooks. So that epiphany struck me as being rather odd. I, maybe some storytellers really want to teach physics to their players though, so um, maybe maybe that's uh, something a lot of people do. Also the epiphany, the apex of history is a place where uh, mages can go and they can see the end of the world play out and hopefully gain some insights from that. But it specifically states in there that based on the tradition the mage belongs to, or the hollow ones, they're going to see a different thing played out. So everyone from this group is going to see this sort of thing. And so I thought it was interesting how this actually assumes group paradigms. I'm not going to launch into a discussion of paradigms here, but individual paradigms versus group paradigms is, is something that has been discussed a lot in even just revised edition. They can keep flipping the switch back and forth between it's this way, no, it's that way. So um, also no material for technocrats here. If you're a technocrat and you go to the apex of history, uh, there's no material for you, even though a lot of material was supplied for the tradition mages. So uh, that was odd. Also, if you go to this epiphany, 
I don't see how a storyteller can can work this properly without making it a terrible time sink. It seems like it would take so long to play this through as they recommend a storyteller to do that I, I, I would avoid it. I, I think it's going to suck a lot of time out of your game sessions. Also, it gives a new background called Past Life, which when th reading through it, this is so similar to the background Dream that it it's just too much uh, repeat. Uh, I don't think this... This uh, past life background should even be used. Just stick with dream and you've got everything you're going to gain as a benefit from there. But uh, okay, that wraps up my thoughts on chapter three. Chapter four is entitled Across the Horizon. It talks about how the first horizon surrounds us. It doesn't actually answer the question of how you get there. And I found this utterly infuriating. And this is also something that first edition didn't quite answer. How do you actually get to it? In the first two editions of Mage, it was kind of assumed that the player characters would go to a Horizon Realm Chantry, which was like wedged right in the middle of the wall of the horizon. And then from there, they walk over to the side that has ports to ether space, and then they hop in an ether ship and, and they're off and they're sailing. And so the Chantry model gave entry to ether space. But yeah, in revised edition, I, I totally agree with you. How do they get to ether space? I don't think we actually get that. The, the outline you're talking about is never mentioned in Book of Worlds. I think we only get that in like Book of Chantries. The, they make mention of, as Adam said, of ether ships. And, and my thought here is you have to launch an ether ship in the penumbra, I think. Because in second edition, it's like, oh, yeah, you can get to the space by going from the middle umbra and going out. And I'm like, oh, yes, when I think of going to other planets, I think of the, the realm of feeling. I'm going to feel my way to space. But <laughs> that's mage. If that doesn't make sense to you, I'm right there with you, buddy. This horizon, this middle uh, horizon, and I've already forgotten the name of it because they use three different terms for it. So the thing past the first horizon before the, the, the far horizon, I think that's the true horizon, is filled with ether that you can breathe if you think you can. If you don't think you can, there's a dumb system provided on determining whether or not you choke to death. Woo! Uh, crossing the first horizon requires an anchor head, which is presented twice in terms of what an anchor head is. And in both cases, they act like it's the first time the term anchor head was used. But it does introduce the idea of you can cross an anchor head and with five successes, you cross without incident. If you get fewer than five successes, it is not a failure, but there is some sort of complication. And maybe if you pass with one success, something gets your attention and maybe following you for the rest of your journey. I like this as an idea. But more importantly, we then go into the other worlds. So between the near and far horizon, before we get to the void, while we're within the true horizon, we have the horizon realms, which as Adam said, went from being stuck on the wall to uh, kind of floating around. Sure, I'm fine with that. Uh, six of one, Baker's dozen of the other. And you can get to some place within ether space, this area within the true horizon, by magic, by portal, or by navigation. And that the portals are largely broken. Thanks. We get a revisit of a number of areas that we had been before, uh, and some of these are redefined. Uh, for instance, Victoria Station was something that we got before where the Society of Ether had operated this more or less moon base, and the advent of disembodiment has resulted in all the people who were there being stuck reenacting Victorian pastiches. It gives the idea that those who have suffered from disembodiment get stuck in a cycle, at least when they're within a realm. And I kind of like this, that you can visit this grand old place 
and see almost this kind of stationary embodiment, not quite necessarily of hubris, but uh, maybe of the dreams of mages and how they can come crashing down. There is Uruk, which was a bipedal dinosaur that is still walking around, and I appreciate any case where we get dinosaurs that you can talk to. This breaks the rare tie in Old World of Darkness where Tharby uh, dinosaurs, Tharby Nazis. This is just dinosaurs. No, no hints of Nazi, and I really appreciated that. We get rules for converting a mage to a spirit that when disembodiment takes effect, they generally get one charm per dot in a sphere that they have, and it just gives you a quick and dirty way of coming up with that. There are slightly more detailed rules if you want them as well. We get information about what happened to the Hollow Worlds, that this is a area that was kind of wished into existence by mortal belief. The civilizations there are never the same way. Twice one may visit the Atlantean realm, which requires matter magic to breathe the water. A second is defended by telepathic dolphin magi empowered by sacred alien crystals. And a third is guarded by the ancestors of Atlantean kings who sustain the ancient populace by magical jewelry worn by the nobility. It reestablishes that there Maybe a connection between the shard realm of magic, the shade realm of magic, and hollow earth. I like weird portals. And then we go through the shard and shade realms. The uh, shard realms are tied to planets. Whether or not they are the planet themselves is left up in the air, and I am fine with that. I'm of the opinion that they aren't. I know that some mage plans are of the opinion that they are. The Shade Realms are were originally cast on the Wall of Horizon, but now it's like, ah, the Shade Realms are out there, but they're dominated by a sphere, but the two are connected. It also mentions that some planets have spirit wilds, formally have their own penumbra and such, which is something that Adam proposed in the Book of Worlds walkthrough. In addition to disembodiment, they contain ghosts of their previous inhabitants, and this to me felt like a different phenomenon than disembodiment, that through using magic you can kind of will these fragments back into existence, or you can try and rebuild build their domain to bring them back. But again, what's the point of doing that if you can only do it in 84-day increments? Yeah, you got me. The mythic realms for a planet are realms that are tied to the social construct of what the place is. For instance, the mythic realm of Mars may contain the Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter, and Mars series. And each planet may have multiple of these, that there may be a mythic realm that has been de defined by the Void Engineers that is just what the planet is like. And now we get the place where it's like, okay, you're going to the umbral version of the planet and visiting the mythic realm of the technocratic version of the planet, which is just the planet. Uh, okay, I'm following. That the other realms have kind of their own form of paradox, which kind of forces you to see the world in the way of the realm you just visited, which sounds either remarkably annoying or a great role-playing opportunity as per your table. And then it goes through the inner planets that are located between Earth and the asteroid belt. We get Mus, which is the moon of Mercury that exists strictly within the Umbra. We got a bunch of information on this in 2E. It is eventually taken over by the Technocracy and then taken over by the Nefandi. And it mentions that Mus kind of has its own low Umbra, and those that is where the Nefandi have taken over. Venus is a perfected version of any Earth ecology where in some places it is endlessly raining. It gives outlines of how the spheres work and it says, in general, if you're not sure what to do, one dot detects it, two dot deflects it, three dots protect you, four dots protect others, and five allows you to master the terrain. It gives us the idea that in the area beyond the far horizon, that disembodiment in the void occurs in a different way that instead of just turning into a spirit, you will start to disappear. We get information on Duizatep, which my speech-to-text automatically translated to doorstep, and that there is a shadow that you can call forth that 
is so saturated with magic that in sometimes you can get a mythic realm of what Doizatep was like, and you can summon the masters that were there back into existence as to what their nature is, that is up to you. Uh, beyond the far horizon, the first crossers into the ether space occurred in about the 1500s. The far horizon was suggested as being somewhere in the 1800s, and it goes from the asteroid belt and beyond. What I liked about this was it gave us an idea of what the far horizon looks like, that there are these anchorheads and entrances that are kind of dispersed among the asteroids. And this is an area where powerful spirits and celestines hold more sway. Many realms float near to these anchor heads in an attempt to get access to the deep umbra. You can also use dream to walk through as suits one paradigm and gates may appear from amongst them. It suggests that the oracles have been trapped as well and can serve as ferrymen, but some have gone kind of crazy. And here we get more information on the realms tied to the outer planets. For instance, the Hyperion realm tied to Jupiter, which hosts continual battles. It is the matter realm that it consists of a vast interplanetary solid in some cases. And in other places, it is living out the wars for the quintessence of Jupiter that were uh, heavily referenced in in Tui, that uh, Saturn is a realm of strange time that can very quickly cause disembodiment, but where do the people go here that are lost? One of the things that got me is they make mention that Uranus and Neptune can't be visited physically, that a seeking is required, and Adam talked earlier about the term essence already being used. I think of mage terms that we really don't need a second definition for. Seeking is kind of up there. Um, and I just found that discussion very confusing. But it basically suggests that once you get past Saturn, things start getting real kooky. And then finally, we get a little bit of information on Pluto as well, where it's like, this is the realm where everything bakes down, which is why the Euthanatoi have been able to set up here without issue for long periods of time and why Senex is using it as a place to do long-term planning. And I'm like, this thematically doesn't seem to tie. <laughs> Thank you for calling that out. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I also like in one of the previous books, like Senex is looking older and you're like, maybe he shouldn't be in the realm of entropy. Just put that one out there. <laughs> put on some moisturizer, buddy. Um, and that brings us to the end of chapter four. Overall, chapter four gives us a lot to work with in a bit more detail than we got in Beyond the Barriers. Still not in enough of the specifics that I want in some cases, but it's it's a great big toolbox to play with that you can certainly run with if you want to. I really like how it started off with uh, rules for getting around and doing things in ether space. I thought that, that was, was very considerate of the players and something I, I might work with in any edition. They talked about uh, two horizon realms that may still exist. They said either all of the horizon realms are gone or just a few that use a storyteller specifically want to work with may have, you know, remnants of them can still be around, but basically they're, they're wrecked and, and run down and, and there's only some, some ruins left. And I did not like the fact that they chose two from Book of Worlds to work with and say, now, now they're run down. I think they should have picked two new ones and said, here's the, here's the ruins of those. Because uh, one, it, it doesn't go against uh, preconceptions of, of mage fans for like what they were going to do with it or what, what they think of that Horizon Realm. But uh, also, it, it was a good opportunity to add more new material to the game and say, look, this, this was run down. It makes you wonder, what did that uh, used to be like? Maybe there's something you can play with in your game connected to that. Instead, it's just uh, Victoria Station. Yeah, it's, it's run down and full of ghosts and Hollow World. And I was like, wait a minute, is, is Hollow World, a, was ever that ever a Horizon Realm? But anyways, uh, Hollow World is, is now run down too. And so it's just kind of a missed opportunity in my mind. Uh, when we get to Mercury, they mention 
the uh, city of brass being there. And I really thought that was so cool how it was a place where, because of the correspondence sphere and, and resonance connected to that, there's a lot of twisted space. And so, um, I mean, just an easy reference for our listeners, uh, you know, MC Escher drawings, how it's like you look at it and it sort of doesn't make sense and it looks like a weird place and you're not sure if you walk uh, along that corridor what's really going to happen to you. This is like the city of brass. I thought that was a cool idea to play, a cool idea, a, a place to play with those ideas. But uh, also at the same time, it, it represented the city of brass as, as some sort of like great big haunted house for mages. And I thought that that's not what I'm looking for. That seems kind of uh, something that I would rather work with on, on Earth or maybe, uh, you know, some other more established horizon <laughs> realm if I'm going to play with haunted houses. But uh, a haunted house where if you don't leave soon enough, you die. <laughs> Yeah, basically. Every section on the planets here started out with a paragraph or two of information on the real-world planets, and I thought that, w that was just a waste of space. For one thing, mage players aren't going to the, the, the physical world representation of Venus or, or something like that. And also, anyone who's even interested in that stuff can, can look it up in the internet or library. And also, that kind of information changes a lot over the course of just 10 years. So, I mean, they, they were just asking... To, to have their information dated. And it, I just don't see how it applies to anyone running the game for anyone. Uh, we, we want the, the mage world, the umbra world of Mercury, not, not the physical real world Mercury. We're not going there. Saturn was interesting with how it really warp time and play with time, just not a place where mages can go and warp time, but a place that naturally by its nature twists and warps time. But the way they write it up in this book, it is so extremely dangerous that it, it, it's basically like a death wish. It's like if you don't give your players a wonder to get them through the experience and they say to you, let's go to Saturn, it's like a responsible storyteller should just say, uh, no, you'll die. It's just, it's so dangerous, it, it's not even funny. Because even if they don't get killed by, by something else, uh, a time trick will make them go through four months in an instant and then, oops, disembodied. Sorry, according to the rules, your player, your characters are dead. That was weird. Also, Pluto was, um, the write-up had a number, just a number of tongue-in-cheek jokes in it, and it kept reiterating the idea that this is the place of physical destruction and conceptual destruction, saying if your player characters go here, there's a really high chance that they will be completely physically obliterated. And even if that doesn't happen, their minds and memories will be completely wiped. They won't know who they are or where they are. And so I was reading through this. It's like, and, and why would we go here again? It's another like death wish. It's like a player says, hey, let's go to Pluto. And a responsible storyteller has to say, no, you'll die. Friends don't let friends go to Saturn. So yeah, cool ideas, but they, they tried to raise the drama by making it so dangerous that I, I think they just turned the dial up too high. It's so risky that why would anyone go there? Yeah, there are certain paradoxes that occur in RPGs. Like the other one is whenever the stakes are the destruction of the world, which I think we've gotten to the point where we're like, okay, so the destruction of the world is on the table. That means we can't fail, right? Storyteller? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. It, yeah, it is so high that it's like not interesting anymore. Like, how dangerous is it? So dangerous. Okay. Guess we should find another way to do it because that sounds real dangerous. No, no, no. You should totally go there. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Chapter five is entitled Beyond the Barriers, and it starts with some basic notes, and it says that uh, what exists beyond in the, the deep universe or the, the, the void is it is varied, it is alien, and it wants something. And I would have liked a little more information about what's theoretically out there. Like in other books, we had received the cop 
as one of those examples. Uh, here we don't get anything, which, okay, uh, we've gotten a lot of information certainly on other things. And we get information on the Chulorvoria, which is a disease that kind of wants to colonize Earth. It is crossed over from the deep ocean where the gauntlet is thin. It has infected Project Deepwater, which is a technocratic thing kind of through Pentax. I like the idea that it says the technocracy may not be aware of Pentax because they tend to interact with each other, Pentax and the technocracy, through a web of intermediaries and shell companies. That is one of the first explanations of why the technocrats would deal with Pentax is it's just too complicated and they don't know. Once this infection lands in a human, they get dumb. If it lands in a cephalopod like a octopus, the octopus gets smarter and gains the ability to burrow in and control people. Mind control squids, which I kind of liked. It also creates an interesting case where the three people that know about this are Pentax, the Society of Ether, and the Copaloe. And I want more kooky ass stuff like that in Mage. Uh, this is a book that brought the weird back into Mage, and every time that happens, that makes me happy. They make a mention, they're like, is this the exact same thing from Blood Dim Tides? And they're like, yep, we just think it's real cool. And I'm like, that is that is all the justification you need to give to me. <laughs> in the same way, it's like, why do you keep adding dinosaurs? Because dinosaurs. Um, the next section we get are on demons, and uh, it makes a mention to this not being the same demon as Demon the Fallen. Everybody drink. It says that umbral demons take on the garb of Christian demons, or are they shaped by human belief? They have varied motives. It kind of suggests that demons, being a demon is real boring. Like, demon place kind of sucks, so if you can go to Earth, why not? Most have some interest in crossing the gauntlet and are willing to let mages do the work. Previously, we had three types of demons. The Malfians or Underworld demons, the Astral demons that were in the High Umbra, and those from the Void. Now they're just kind of demons. Demons can serve as patrons or and provide the benefits of being a totem, but their bans and requirements tend to be much more vile. And we got two examples, and uh, Tiglis is a demon who periodically has a realm that floats close to Earth and is just a mass of vines that emerge from darkness that have the ability to tell what you're thinking by making contact with you. One of the things that's presented in numerous places in this book is the idea that certain realms can sometimes be closer or further from each other, and I would have liked a little more information on maybe what the author's intended for that. Does that just mean it means more successes, or is this kind of a way of saying, ah, I can only be visited once every full moon or something? like that. I don't know. Uh, we get a new class of entities called the Hive Dwellers, and I really like this idea. And it said that one of the things that occurred under the, the Heineck reign was the Nefandi were kind of downplayed because a bunch of them lost access to their umbral masters and were kind of like, ah, for a second time in a century. And what this says essentially is that their masters are still out there, but they just had to recalibrate their rituals to find them. And that in a number of cases, that those rituals that had previously been used made contact with something else. And these things are called the hive dwellers. These are new creatures that are answering old summons and they are active in there. They want out. And it gives us a couple of different types. The guardians are four legged, strange creatures with uh, fins and tails that have natural weapons and have this uh, strange, almost Geiger esque appearance to them. The builders make the umbral dwelling place. They're not sure what they would do on Earth. They can be from the size of a dog to the size of a city bus, that their realm is this place of uh, dark ashen clay that doesn't seem to be too fun to be, and that the, the masters are the size of a two-story building, that the hive realms are a cluster of realms in the deep umbra, and that they've spread, that they slowly drift together and apart. And this is kind of a blank canvas. Maybe they're planning an invasion. Maybe they're co-opting the Nefandi. Maybe they have something useful. Maybe the characters make an oopsie and attach, attract their attention and so on. But these are entities that very willingly 
answer umbral summons. And it kind of gives us the idea that whenever you try and cross the gauntlet, entities can choose whether or not they want to respond. And ultimately in the storytelling section, we get more information on that. So I like the idea that one of the dangers of piercing the gauntlet is not that you'll get the right spirit and that they'll be mad at you, but that you'll get the wrong one. We also get some information on the Ashirai, which are entities from Changeling, that they are demons that cause nightmares and spread disease. They have been present for years and that they are from the dream realms. And I like the idea that you can pick up something from one of the realms that you visit. And this kind of brought back the old idea of the dream lords, which we haven't really seen since 1E, where things got weird and kooky. And they want to uh, spread corruption throughout humanity. We also get the idea of the soul guides or the psychopomps, that they guided the avatars and made uh, matches between mages and their avatars. And that is why they tended not to be so noisy in past times. They were banned at some point, whether it was because they taught humans how to manipulate magic or something, and that the uh, the Anakim are a merger of a psychopomp and a mage, which we got some information on in Transmission Manifesto from the Rogue Council. We then get some information on how bargaining works, where it starts with you contact the entity, you entreat them to get them to listen, you go through a bargaining phase, and then service is delivered. And this is a fine overview. We've gotten this three or four times throughout the history of Mage. This is remarkably similar to Invisible Sun's Colloquy. For those of you who are fans of the Goetic type of Vizlay, I just like including references to Invisible Sun. And that brings us to the close of the chapter. Well, I really like the idea of linking the deep umbra and the deep ocean of uh, deep oceans of Earth. Now, uh, that was probably referenced in World of Darkness, Blood, Dim Tides. I have not read that book yet. Uh, it was put out in roughly the second edition era of Mage. So that might be a recycled idea. But I, I really liked that notion of how thematically there's something that connects the deep ocean to the deep umbra. And so that can be, uh, in, in certain circumstances controlled by the storyteller that might be a shortcut to dealing with things that come from the deep umbra. So I, I like playing with that idea, especially for villains. Kulor Vaya, or however you're supposed to pronounce that. I, I really liked that. Uh, it does say that they pulled that out of Blood Dim Tides, but uh, yeah, that was one of those weird, cool ideas that has uh, hints of uh, first edition Nefandi that I thought was very cool. And of course, to link that with Watchers from the Deep, which were mentioned in Book of Worlds, I think that's a, a natural connection is something I would love to play with. So I enjoyed that section. Uh, the Hive Dwellers was interesting. It's like, yes, we have talked about demons from the Umbra before, but here's a new idea that you could work with, uh, something a little less religious, a little more materialistic. And uh, I, I think there's plenty of room in Mage for that. I thought that was, was, was interesting to play with. Uh, the only part of that section of Chapter 5 that I didn't like so much was that it hinted that most Nefandi are dumb and they can't tell that this switch has happened. It's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I, I like the Nefandi being about as intelligent as, as other groups of mages. And so Nefandi who are constantly focusing on deep umbra and demons and evil sorts of things, it seems like they would be the first ones to notice things like this. But if they're getting results that they like, they would, would run with it. So that was a little odd. I've seen this before in some other different uh, role-playing books. Like, bad guys are dumb. That's why they're bad guys. It's like, no, some bad guys are very smart. They're just bad. There were three nice uh, story hooks uh, worked into this area. And I wouldn't mind more of that. I, I certainly enjoyed uh, having those offered. And uh, in the Fever Dreams section, we have the Asherai. 
um, which it says was taken from an old Changeling book, but I, I thought that was very interesting, uh, tied in with some uh, different uh, real world cultures on Earth and uh, the ideas that can come with. So really liked how this chapter gave a few ideas for groups of villains that you can use in your stories. Pretty cool stuff here. It finished with the section Across the Gauntlet, which is giving a little more detail on stages of summoning awful things from the Umbra and how you might work with that. I, I thought this section was just repeat. I, I think we all have a good understanding of this. Um, it, it was just unnecessary. That, that space could have been given over to uh, something more interesting. So that wraps up chapter five for me. Chapter six is entitled Walking the Worlds, and this is the storyteller chapter that says, so what you doing and why? I don't have a huge amount to say about this, but it says the questions you want to answer before you go into the Umbra is, why are you doing it? What changes does the group need to make? What preparations need to be made ahead of time? And what themes are going to be explored? Perfectly reasonable. The other question it raises are, why are the characters doing it? And this may be curiosity or possibility or wisdom or power or escapism or refuge or reclamation or to some sort of lesson. And again, goes back to what are the characters going to take home with them? What lesson or idea or change will have occurred? And then it gives some ideas for plots. Maybe the characters are fleeing from enemies, which is very interesting and revised because if you have to deal with the Avatar Storm, who is the enemy that can make you suffer the fact that you may actually have your soul flinched off of you? Maybe they discover an invasion that is going to occur or an entity that is has escaped from hell. Maybe somebody has invited the wrong spirit in and that needs to be deal with if you're a technocrat maybe you need to do some sanitization that there is something in the umbral that is causing problems it also mentions that the umbra is a good place for crossover in the sense that you can have a mage run into a werewolf in some place without necessarily having to suggest that there are a whole bunch of werewolves in your character city or something like that which i kind of liked as an idea it gave a rundown of what changed and why regarding the avatar storm that it creates a humbling experience for people who use the umbra as their personal playground i always considered the umbra sufficiently lethal anyway that you didn't need the avatar storm in addition to it but uh spirit three just allowing you to get away from anything i can certainly understand why narratively that can be a bothersome it also mentions yep the astral reaches have become more solidified and to me this is just a byproduct of the fact that they wrote about them a bunch that any location that gets a whole bunch of text written on it is to me implicitly from a narrative sense going to be more detailed we also then get the sample story the master's voice which i really don't feel compelled to say anything about it is not even a adventure it is like it is the cocktail napkin outline of an adventure. It has some beats and it even goes so far as to say these remarkably vital characters that drive all the action. Yeah. We're not going to give you stats for them. Oh. And it even says, we're not going to give you stats about this character because it's not needed. And then in the second one, it gives, we're not giving you stats for this character either because their stats should be tied to this other character stats. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm like, uh, at least it didn't take up too much space. Anything leap out to you about chapter six? I like how they started with the four questions uh, before taking your group to the Ember. That can start off some good thinking for the storyteller. However, I would say don't get too hung up on theme because in my experience, when you take your players into the Umbra, there's going to be multiple events and multiple themes can easily be played with. So don't stick on that one too much. Uh, seven reasons to visit the Umbra, I thought were, were very good. However, each one of those seven reasons was followed by a short section on possible realms that you can use with this. And I, I thought the possible realms sections all seven of them were, were pretty useless. Yeah. In fact, some of them just said, oh, we can't recommend any here. Well, then why do you have a section for it? 
So that that was not a good use of space. It's pretty but, late um, in the book. They were tired. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, page 160, one of those reasons is wisdom. And it, it introduces the idea that intent determines travel, which means that a mage can go into the Umbra and walk blindly around, not knowing where they are going, but still go somewhere meaningful. And I, I like that idea, not just as a, a, a convenient uh, tool for the storyteller, but also because it ties in with the theme of uh, vision quests. And that is, um, many people have suggested that the Umbra is like a, a, a concrete physical representation of what used to be a more internal process. And that is the spirit quest, the shaman, mage, whatever, uh, goes questing in their mind to find something and hopefully come home with new knowledge. And so I, I think that fits for that. You go, you, you take a walk, you're not sure where you're going um, but instead of getting lost and getting home late, uh, you, you do find something meaningful after all. So I, I like that they kept that in mind. They have page 165, a sidebar on, sidebar on creating a realm. It was a nice little example of you know, a mage wants to know how to do something uh, concerned with uh, images, you know, working uh, from mine two to mine three. And so they go to a, a small realm that is just a big, great big picture gallery. And as they look at all the different pictures, they, they get a mental breakthrough. I guess that was nice, but I, I really would like to have seen this sidebar expanded into a section in the chapter and more details should have been given into. Look, you, you, we're expecting you to make realms for your players. Here's some ideas. Here's some things to keep in mind. Here's an example or two. It was just a lost opportunity. On page 165, again, uh, they mention that storytellers should be uh, flexible. And specifically what they say is there are a lot of things you set up in your uh, story session uh, for your players that are like throwaway. It's like you, some bad guys attack them because you want some action. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if the players assume there's some great significance to that, then as a storyteller, you should be flexible. You should be ready to stop and say, oh, yeah, maybe this does represent something more meaningful, more important. Uh, let me come up with an idea and work that into my game session and be ready to do that uh, at the drop of a hat. And I think that's great advice. I think more storytellers uh, should be given advice like that. I've had a lot of things in my games where I just threw in an NPC because I thought, you know, maybe there ought to be some atmosphere or some flavor. The players latch onto it and say, I want more here. And so I created more for them. And it was, it's a lot of fun. There's a section on umbral plot devices. And I just want to say, finally, the umbra reaches to earth. This is something that was ignored through much of revised edition and even second edition. The idea that it isn't just people on earth who go into the umbra, but sometimes the umbra comes home to earth and causes problems here or sends some of their bad boys to stir things up. Uh, I thought that was a touch of first edition. Warmed my heart, uh, enjoyed it. But beyond that, some of the ideas they put here, I think can lead to very interesting stories. So I think they accomplished two or three uh, worthy goals at once with that section. Uh, finally, um, I have been talking about the uh, sample stories published in Mage Books. There's not a lot of them, but the ones that uh, there are, I've been calling out and discussing. And so here we have the sample story where they started off saying, this is a bare bones story. And boy, were they right. <laughs> it is so bare bones. It's not very useful. They promised nothing and then delivered on it. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's like uh, you could do something sort of like this and it might end kind of like this and, and maybe this will come next. And yeah, there's these two characters, but we're not going to give you any stats. And wouldn't this be fun? And I'm like, I could have come up with that on my own, you know, at the drop of the hat. It's like this is not a good use of space here. It's like either give us an, a sample story or don't give us a sample story. But this sort of half measure was worth less than 50%, let's say. So yeah, not a good use of space. But uh, finally, Terry, anything on the appendix? 
The appendix was actually, to me, quite useful because one of the things that Bill Bridges has said before is that they wanted to make the Umbra less inviting, not necessarily directly hostile. And this goes through a bunch of ways that you can deal with the Avatar Storm. From low-level things of something called pathfinding, which with Entropy 1, Spirit 1, you can path away through the Avatar Storm, which lets you, based on successes, have soak dice to use against the Avatar Storm. Remembrance lets you stave off disembodiment for a day in exchange for a point of quintessence. Bridge of Blood allows you to use Prime 3, Spirit 4 to use a spirit as kind of a sacrificial thing to have targeted by the Avatar Storm. Astral Sojourn, as we said before, Mine 4, Prime 2, Spirit 3. Uh, in addition to that, we get a number of very useful wonders. The Biotemporal Maintenance Field Generator, that in exchange for a unsoakable loss of a health level, you get an extra week before disembodiment happens, which I like this because this suggests the characters who took the huge merit, which gives you an additional health level, can stay in the umbral lo longer. So I just like the idea of these absolutely jacked dream speakers with field maintenance generators just walking about the umbra being like, do you even disembody, bruh? And that's that's a game of mage I want to play. That is not, in fact, a game of mage I want to play. <laughs> it it also introduces Ravana's skin as a uh, another thing that was kind of a, a grisly byproduct of the week of nightmares. That the author Stephen Michael DePisa said, "I have never had more fun as a mage author than when I get to write morbid wonders." So that's good to see. And I also like the fact that it kind of, with a wink and a nod, says, "Oh, by the way, these wonders just kind of appeared." as they were needed. And there's a throwaway line that suggests that it's like a manifestation of the Inventium. And I'm like, oh yeah, I like that idea. Anytime you can have me justify a plot gimme to a player, thank you, book. We get a bunch of merits, uh, ways characters can do unusually well or unusually poorly within the Umbra. Of appendices, everything in here felt useful to me and I very much appreciated that. I would have almost moved some of this stuff up. The the table that Adam liked uh, made some mention to some of these but I think some of the like the Bridge of Blood and Pathfinding I think would have been great and even narratively it makes sense because it took a bit for these magics to be discovered so by the time they did Disembodiment probably hit the Masters Are Lost. I really like the appendix which is not something I say very often. Uh, what were your thoughts on the appendix? Yeah, much the same. This was a, a, a short appendix. It was very useful. It was very much worth its weight. In fact, this is something that is, is very useful. There were a lot of good rotes in here. One that stood out to me was Auric Trail. Mm -hmm. and that is basically you can track a mage or a spirit uh, through the Umbra uh, related to the resonance. And I like this as an encouragement uh, to players to even go to the Umbra at all. As a storyteller, I can you know talk to some players and they're like, oh, we... we, we would get lost there. It's kind of a scary place. It's like, no, there's a trail. You can follow the trail to what you want, and uh, then you can look for a way out. Or the person, the thing that you're tracking that got in, it if it knows how to get in, it probably knows how to get out. And so this can be an encouragement for players and useful for stories. So I really liked that road in particular. Also, there were uh, some wonders. Uh, the dream gates, uh, multiple things that have to do with with dream realms, the Oneira. Uh, I thought that was really handy. It says that more of them are appearing now. This was an, an interesting encouragement for a storyteller to attach a story to that. And also the idea of the perfected focus. I, I found profound. This idea that it is, is not just a sword, but it is a sword from the high umbra, or it is a sword that you took to the high umbra and there perfected its core concept, which I mean, some people might say, well, that's just stabbing or slashing, that's violent. It's like, well, no, swords have been very important as symbology in many cultures and mythologies. And so a perfected focus sword is not necessarily a thing for killing people. 
So I, I really like that idea of, of taking this object and it, it is more than just what it is. It's like a, a super representation of its core concept. And you can take that to earth and it's going to be uh, different than the average pen. It's going to do thing that, things that no other pen can do. So I, I just really would love to play with that as a storyteller. And also the merits and flaws, uh, they were very appropriate to this book. If I'm not running the content of this book, most of these merits and flaws may not be so important. However, I did like natural shallowing, and uh, that that is something I could use in any edition of Mage. Shallowing is a place where anyone can accidentally walk from Earth to Umbra or Umbra to Earth. And so with this uh, uh, merit, instead of attaching it to a place, it's attaching it to a person. I thought that was, was very interesting. I, I didn't make that mental leap myself, but I would love to play with it now that I've seen it. So that wraps up my thoughts on the appendix, and uh, I guess it's time to just talk about the book in general. Uh, Terry, what, what were your thoughts? This book was great. This was a fire cannon of fire cannon. Uh, this <laughs> this was a fire hose of useful stuff. It did leave me with a lot of unanswered questions. I like the astral reaches being a little more solidified. I like the the kind of quest framework that we got in here. If you still want to do the kooky out there stuff, you still have the void, you still have realms and so on, but just giving a little bit of order and structure to it, I super like. I think it gave reasons to go some places. I, the idea of patrons being, of spirit patrons being usable and not unreasonable and being like mage inflected because in Werewolf you have so many patron options and they're all tied to, to natural spirits and so on. But to give the idea that like, oh no, I am tied to Calliope or Terpsichore or some new god. I, it just feels very magey to me. Your characters still have access to all the existing ones if they would like to have a more traditional patron or what have you. But um, yeah, no rules for ether ships. Was really was really hoping to get something on this. But uh, but I still had some vagueness on like how navigation actually happened. It gave systems for it, but I'm just not quite sure how you cross that first horizon. And I can come up with something as a storyteller, but I always like to kind of know what the devs uh, wanted. Some of the stuff regarding how the planets work, the Shard and Shade realms got a little bit confusing. I would have liked a little more information on me. I, I am fine, for instance, with Saturn being unnavigable because that is a plot device to me and saying, oh no, person went to Saturn. We have a very short period of time to recover them before disembodiment takes over or what have you. So it can give things like that, but uh, a little more, a, a few more handholds I thought would have been great. Uh, this is a big sprawling book. The parts don't necessarily agree with each other internally. Uh, Adam talked about how essence was a term that was reused. I was thrown off by seekings being reused. This just felt like a book that again, was struck by Revised having a very aggressive timeline and just those finishing touches not necessarily always being able to, to put on it. Uh, there were a bunch of things mentioned that didn't get systems. For instance, they talk about how the Avatar Storm still goes through realms in certain areas, but we didn't really get some information on that. Some of the ideas don't add up. Like they say that ether ships can take you physically somewhere as opposed to needing to astral project, but apparently Uranus and Neptune are too far for that. But on the whole, I'll, I'll take it. It was big. It was great. It was glorious. And boy, I wish we had an M20 version that just kind of brought everything together, took the best bits of Book of Worlds and some of the real stuff I, I like from Infinite Tapestry that made the spires and so on make sense to, to kind of have that omnibus edition, he said, trying to convince himself not to start that project. <laughs> Would yeah, Terry and I have spoken a number of times, and uh, 
just because of the, the people we're able to talk to through the podcast, we've gained uh, some information on um, uh, discussions of upcoming books from age 20. And unfortunately, on the, the lists that we have seen, yeah. uh, a new book that deals with the Umbra from age 20 is not something that we have seen. And so, uh, yeah, unfortunate. But hey, you know, the future, anything can happen. Yep. What do you think about it, Adam? Well, there were a number of things uh, here, 188 pages, and they are definitely uh, action-packed, which is to say there's a lot of content here. We do not get long uh, character fiction sections that say, yeah, I guess you're a good (laughs) writer, but so what? No, this book is packed with stuff for you to go over and and, uh, work into your games. For me, the High Umbra was basically redone uh, for this. They basically took just about the whole High Umbra and said, okay, that's how it was in Book of Worlds. We're going to redo it uh, for this book. And there was a real focus on intellectual, I guess you could even say psychological uh, kind of themes here. And so I think that kind of narrowed, for me at least, it narrowed the possibilities of what you can do with the High Umbra. I thought the Middle Umbra in many different World of Darkness books is allowed so much latitude and so much freedom. It seems like the Middle Umbra is where you can put all kinds of wild, weird ideas. But, but here the High Umbra is more focused. But again, for me, it's not as fun, but I want to make it clear that there are a lot of Mage fans I have talked to who thought, whoa, the High Umbra, that is just a confusing mass of muddle. I can't do a thing with it. And they come to this book, it's like, hey, this makes sense. I can run with this. It's like, I'm so glad that this is available for the people who, who want it, for the people who are going to use it. I'm really glad it's there. Even if I'm not the guy running with this material, I'm so glad that other people are. Different mage fans can get the things they need. I'm really glad that this book did not spend time on uh, Middle Umbra or the Low Umbra. Going back uh, and looking at the the Book of Worlds again, that was one of my disappointments there. It's like the High Umbra is like the mage part of the Umbra. Uh, That's what it was written to be, and so we should have had more focus there. But Book of Worlds, there was a lot of page count given over to Low Umbra and Middle Umbra. And here it's like, no, let's just stick with the High Umbra. Players who want to deal with those other layers of the Umbra, there's plenty of material on that already, so totally agree with that decision. There's a greater focus here on the Umbra being a resource to help with things on Earth, and that's appropriate for revised edition. The Umbra is where you go to get insights and knowledge that you take back to Earth so you can make Earth a better place to live. And that really fits with revised edition. So it was very appropriate for this book. As for myself, um, it's no secret that I, I like some of the themes of the previous editions of Mage. And that is that the when you awaken, you find out that the world is much bigger than you thought. And so the Umbra is an extension of the real world. It's just most people don't know it's there. And so what that means is you can do things in the Umbra that will affect Earth, or you can do things on Earth that will affect the Umbra I like um, playing with ideas like that. But yeah, for a lot of people, that, that's a little too out there. So uh, it was this book had a very appropriate focus for revised edition. So good job on that. One of the things I got to say I just drove me crazy was this book harped nonstop on disembodiment, almost like a nagging mother at times. I, I swear, I was reading through every chapter of this book and say, oh, but be careful if you're here too long, you're going to get disembodied. It's like, yeah, I know you told me last page. And the page before that. I've got it by now. Thank you. Can you just chill? Okay, just just have a seat. Have a drink. We're going to get through this. Okay, I know about disembodiment. <laughs> so that was a little irritating at times. One thing that was odd to me was previous revised edition books 
repeatedly talked about the idea of going into the Umbra, um, finding the horizon realms that were cut off, and rescuing people there. This is mentioned a number of times in revised edition books. And so we get to this book, and it says, No, you can't! They're all dead! You can only talk to their ghosts. It's like, okay, I, I guess... You, you just set me up for the opposite of that is, is all I'm saying. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just you, you kind of gave me this idea again and again. Hey, let's go rescue people from Horizon Realms. It's like, and this book says, absolutely not. There will be none of that. They all dead. And, and if you mope about it, you're going to be dead too. So get your, get your ass out of there. So <laughs> that was kind of funny. I think my biggest complaint with this book is the inconsistent information about the results of disembodiment. In the first two editions of Mage, uh, it made it clear example of uh, Aelita, the Lady of Feathers, was, was basically a female hermetic mage who spent too much time in the Umbra after her chantry was attacked, and she turned into an umbral spirit. So the results of disembodiment are your image, your form changes until you no longer look human. You become a different other sort of creature. You get to know other umbrood. You become concerned with umbrood matters, uh, but you are a, a real thinking creature that adapts completely to a very different uh, world. Uh, here we have an example of that. Uh, early in the book, there is an example of a hermetic who goes into the umbra. She meets her former mentor, who was a master, and he's got elongated fingers and an alien-looking appearance, and he has obviously changed. So this book makes it clear, yeah, that happens. But then we also get to Victoria Station. There the disembodied mages look exactly like humans, and they are uh, basically um, simplified ghosts or simple-minded ghosts. They go through their everyday routine. They say things they normally say. They do things they normally do, but they are somehow not aware of the fact that they're dead, that they're not fully sentient beings with agency that can decide what do I want to do in the future, that they just repeat their daily routine again and again and again. And then in the sample story at the end, we have Selah, who is a master who has disembodied in the Umbra, but she turns into an Umbrood that looks exactly like a person. She has her full mental capabilities, uh, but she's very interested in, in the humans on Earth and is working to do things for humans on Earth. So we have three very different results of disembodiment and no information of when does one happen or when does the other happen? It just says all three of these can happen. So that was a glaring inconsistency for me. I really would have liked just some sidebar saying the result is random. It could be one of these three. Or if you disembody like this, you're going to get this result. If you disembody over here, you're going to get result number two. Or uh, two of these are rumors and one really happens. Just something to help me bring this together because that just threw me for a loop. It felt like one of those things that the outline they got said, everyone needs to mention disembodiment. Like, we need to make sure we mention disembodiment in the book. So every author in every chapter is like, well, it better mention disembodiment. But yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah. Couldn't the editor have like gone through the book at once and say, let's knock a few of these out because it's getting pedantic. And speaking of that, the quote I actually wanted to mention was that note of disembodiment. And this is at the opening of one of the chapters, and it says, Yes, I remember you now, little one, it said to me. You have grown some, but it has not been long at all. No, not so long. I see you fear and frustration. They are written as plainly as the power that flows through your soul like blood. Do not fret, little one. At this, it reached out with its hands, its fingers each longer than a man's arm, and gently stroked my cheek in what must have been construed as a comforting fashion. Raw quintessence boiled over the tips of its crystalline claws, and so powerful was the sensation that I hardly noticed the tiny reveal 
rivulets of blood that flowed from the cuts it left on my face. My eyes burned with tears, for the fatherly jester, despite how grotesque and monstrous it had become, was familiar to me. The elemental had not lied. What floated in the ether before me had once been Antonio de Roma, master of Ars Vis and my potter, from the journals of Veronica Underwood, Bonnie Bani Sages. I love those little bits. The, the paragraph-long level is the exact level of in-world fiction I want. The most mage quote occurs on page 176 when they're talking about talking with Sila and what can happen when you have that conversation. And it says, Sila may help you. Sila may not help you. And then the final one is any other possibility that the character's actions might suggest. And this, kids, is why it is hard to run mage. And I thought that, that one sentence perfectly encapsulated it. Uh, did anything jump out to you? Uh, not, not always, but this time one quote just absolutely jumped off the page to me. Page 62. These churned up areas have since been recovered, repopulated, and rebuilt with unfounded fantasy and rumor, or with modernist revisionism. End quote. Indeed, Sam. Indeed. Well, I wanted to round us out with uh, three uh, adventure ideas before we wrap up today. Number one, the players obtain three umbral navigation wonders. One is hundreds of years old, a recent one from before the Avatar Storm, and one made after the Avatar Storm. The players have a unique opportunity to travel the umbra and compare data from the three wonders to learn about the shifting currents of the other worlds. The only wrinkle is each wonder comes with its own baggage. The staff of many crossings bears the mark of the Duke of Masks, an umbral lord well known to Umbrud for his deceptions and his long-ranging plans. Yatraman's excellent compass is a golden dish that, when filled with liquid, gives directions or hints to guide the user. Yatraman was an ambitious member of the Order's House Titleist, who made many allies and enemies among the Umbrud. Anyone using the dish may be mistaken for his apprentice. The pendulum of Imara was stolen from a prominent verbena who demanded its return, but there's no need to worry. She disappeared after taking a quest to the Umbra. There's no way she's going to cause any trouble. Number two, a tradition chantry is in trouble. Its nodes stopped giving tasks, and at random intervals, its buildings and grounds temporarily became semi-transparent, fading to bare soil. The players discover the chantry is linked to a lost horizon realm. Whenever the fading occurs, a shallowing opens to that horizon realm where the ruins of a cathedral to an unknown religion and its supporting buildings lie. No life is found there, but large indecipherable sigils were burned into the wrecked buildings. The horizon realm will break up soon and it will take the earthbound chantry with it. Is the reason for this connected to a secret the chantry leader is trying to hide? Or do the umbrood lords want something so badly they'll risk disturbing the other side of the gauntlet to get it? Storytellers can focus this story on intrigue in the Chantry or exploring the umbra surrounding the Horizon Realm. Number three, a gentle old man appears at the player's Chantry or one of their sanctums and begs to stay. He bears a strong resonance of rest and revitalization. Examinations indicate he's an embodied spirit. If allowed to settle in, the player's wounds heal faster and study time is more effective. The players are contacted in dreams by an astral spirit claiming the visitor is really a peninsula on the river of language in the Vulgate and must be returned. The Vulgate's river is filling with silt while the surrounding area runs down. The old man wants to stay, although he won't say why, but the astral spirits threaten dire consequences. As the players sort it out, they learn the kindly old man has been infected with an unearthly malady. Could the infection spread through the Vulgate? The player's research, diplomacy, and cosmology skills will be taxed as they search for an answer. The solution may have to do with a children's rhyme that motivated the spirit to cross the gauntlet. So those are three uh, rough ideas for stories. Uh, hopefully you can find something entertaining there. And uh, Terry, any last thoughts? 
I am super excited that our next book is small. Uh, and that is <laughs> <laughs> that is tradition book Order of Hermes. So I look forward to, uh, to to getting back to what we do best, which is long sections of in-character prose punctuated with exhaustive lists of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that book too. I always like reading about the Order of Hermes. And uh, this was one of the few books where uh, Mr. Brucato came back and uh, contributed to revised editions. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I have not read it before. Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a positive review for Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in other people's searches. You can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there in the order we put them out and see the complete show notes that we prepare for you. This episode is thanks to executive producers uh, Josh H., John Magnuson, uh, Jenna F., uh, John H., Chris Zack, William M., Neil Patterson, Christopher, Buck Farmer, Anders S., uh, Brendan, Dan Svensson, Jay Sunsern, Andrew E., William C., Isabel Castillo, uh, Josh Golden, Michael Credle, Freddie, Richard Bat Brewster, Bryce Perry, Andy, and Michael Parker. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep bringing you episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Go change the other worlds, or at least come up with a well-defined way of determining whether or not you've encountered the true horizon. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.